On today's story session, a tale about when teaching someone a lesson goes way too far. This is King Thrushbeard. My name is Zach Stewart, and these are the Shadow Bear Story Sessions. Welcome to the Shadow Bear Story Sessions, the podcast about how brutally dark and totally insane folktales and fairy tales used to be, which in my opinion just made them way better and more entertaining. So I've got the most true to the original version of Grimm's fairy tales that I could find, and we're going through it front to back, story by story. We'll figure out the intended lessons of each story and the actual lessons of each story. And at the end of each episode, I'll adapt the tale into a movie or TV show. Let's get right to it with today's tale titled, King Thrushbeard. We begin. A king had a daughter who was marvelously beautiful, but so proud and haughty that she rejected one suitor after the other out of stubbornness and ridiculed them as well. She ridiculed them? It already hurts getting rejected, lady. You don't gotta rub it in. Once her father held a great feast and invited all the marriageable young men to the event. They were all lined up according to their rank and class. First came the kings, then the dukes, princes, counts, and barons, and finally, the gentry. The king's daughter was led down a line, and she found fault with each one of the suitors there. In particular, she made the most fun of a good king who stood at the head of the line and had a chin that was a bit crooked. My goodness, she exclaimed and laughed, he's got a chin like a thrush's beak. And from then on, everyone called him Thrushbeard. She's like a high school bully. And he's a king. She's so brutal with her bullying that she coined a mean nickname for a fucking king. I mean, she's definitely a bitch, but at this point it's getting almost impressive. Gotta gotta kind of give her some credit for that one. When her father saw how his daughter did nothing but ridicule people... He became furious and swore that she would have to marry the first beggar who came to his door. Boom, that is a threat. A few days later, a minstrel appeared and began singing beneath the prince's window. When the king heard him, he ordered him to come up to him immediately. Despite his dirty appearance, his daughter had to accept him as her bridegroom. A minister was summoned right away, and the wedding took place. After the wedding was finished, the king said to his daughter, It's not fitting for you to stay in my palace any longer since you're a beggar woman. You must now depart with your husband. Wow. This king is done with this mean girl right here. Story could end right now, and I'd be satisfied. This this is just this is karma, folks. But then again, maybe the minstrel is, is a super cool and nice guy. And maybe he's actually super wealthy. He just enjoys getting all dirty and playing music around town. And he's also an incredible lover, incidentally. Appearances can be deceiving, folks. That's that's my point. But I don't think you can call this guy a beggar. He's got a skill. He's a minstrel. He plays music, right? That's what minstrel means. Can't just call him a beggar. Musicians, musicians are hot, right? But how do we know this minstrel wants to marry this stuck-up lady to begin with? What if he's like, yeah, she seems... Kind of high maintenance. I'm more of a relaxed, wandering musician type. Can't deal with all that that high and mighty judgmental bullshit. 
Genuinely, I don't I don't know why the minstrel would want to marry her. I guess he's he's talking to the king though, so maybe he doesn't have a choice in the matter. Alright. We continue. The beggar took her away, and as they walked through a huge forest. Why are they walking through a huge forest? As they walked through a huge forest, she asked the beggar, Tell me, who might the owner of this beautiful forest be? King Thrushbeard owns the forest, and all you can see. If you had taken him, it would belong to you. Alas, poor me, what can I do? I should have wed King Thrushbeard if only I knew. Soon they crossed a meadow, and she asked again, Tell me, who might the owner of this beautiful green meadow be? King Thrushbeard owns the meadow and all you can see. If you had taken him, it would belong to you. Alas, poor me, what can I do? I should have wed King Thrushbeard if only I knew. I mean, she knew he was a king. He probably owned a bunch of shit. King's own stuff. King's own land, meadows, forests, all kinds of stuff. She knew he was a king. This should not be a surprise. Then they came to a large city, and she asked once more, Tell me, who might the owner of this beautiful big city be? King Thrushbeard owns the forest and all you can see. Does he mean city? Just a typo here. If you had taken him, it would belong to you. Alas, poor me, what can I do? I should have wed King Thrushbeard, if only I knew. The minstrel became very grumpy when he heard that she always desired another man and didn't think that he was good enough for her. Finally, they came to a tiny cottage, and she exclaimed, Oh, Lord, what a wretched tiny house. It's not even fit for a little mouse. That, that burn stings even more when it's in a rhyme. The beggar answered, This house is our house, and we shall live here together. Now make a fire at once and put the water on so you can cook me my meal. I'm very tired. However, the king's daughter knew nothing about cooking, and the beggar had to lend a hand himself. I mean, yeah, he basically just got another mouth to feed since this lady has no skills and cannot contribute to the household in any way. She's, she's just a burden at this point. At first, things went reasonably well. Oh, all right. And after they had eaten, they went to bed. But the next morning, she had to get up very early and work. For a few days, they lived miserably until the man finally said, Wife, we can't go on this way any longer. We're eating everything up and not earning anything. Well, they said she's getting up to work. What's she doing, then? Very vague. You've got to weave baskets. All right, buddy, why would you think she can do this? He went out and cut some willows and brought them home, and she had to begin to weave baskets. However, the rough willows bruised her hands. I see you can't do this work, said the man, so try spinning. Perhaps you'll be better at that. She sat down and spun. But her fingers were so soft that the hard thread soon cut her, and blood began to flow. "'You're not fit for any kind of work,' said the man, who was now very irritated. "'I'm going to start a business with earthenware. You're to sit in the marketplace and sell the wares.' This guy actually has a lot of ideas. Pretty industrious. I mean, he's pawning off all the the, you know, labor onto the wife. Seems like he could sort of pitch in for that. But he's got, seems to have a lot of access to stuff and a lot of ideas. So if he puts in the time and effort to make this work himself, boom, that's husband material right there. This guy's a catch. What happened to the music, though? Is he giving that up now that he's a married man? It's kind of sad. We continue. 
On the first occasion, everything went well. People gladly bought her pots because she was beautiful, and they paid what she asked. Indeed, many gave her money and didn't even bother to take the pots with them. <laughs> so she's so hot that the people who bought stuff from her forgot to even take the stuff. It's pretty useful, actually. We found, we found her purpose. We found what can make her a very valuable helper here. When everything had been sold, her husband bought a lot of new earthenware. Once again, his wife sat down with it at the marketplace and hoped to make a good profit. Suddenly, a drunken husser came galloping along and rode right over the pots so that they were all smashed to pieces. The woman became terrified, and for the rest of the day, she didn't dare to go home. When she finally did, the beggar was nowhere to be seen. Ah, he abandoned her? That's pretty brutal, actually. Especially things were starting to go well, finally. That's not, that's not okay man. For some time, she lived in poverty and in great need. Oh, this is actually on her side now. Then a man came and invited her to a wedding. She wanted to take all kinds of leftovers from the wedding and live off them for a while. Who was this guy that randomly showed up and invited her to a wedding? Why is he doing that? It should invite some questions on her part. So she put on her little coat with a pot underneath and stuck a large leather purse with it. She's got a pot underneath the coat? Like at her stomach and she's pretending to be pregnant? Or like fastened, like between her legs or something? What is the situation? Help me picture this. I don't know what this looks like. The wedding was magnificent and with plenty of good things. She filled the pot with soup and her leather purse with scraps. That is heavy. You got a pot full of soup on your stomach or, or hanging down somewhere? This would be difficult to move around like this. Definitely very conspicuous. As she was about to leave with everything, one of the guests demanded that she dance with him. She resisted with all her might, but to no avail. The fuck? He grabbed hold of her, and she had to go with him. What the hell? That is not cool. Don't force someone to dance kind of weird fucking wedding is this? I mean, I kind of see where this is going. But still, weird behavior all around. All at once, the pot fell so that the soup flowed on the ground and the many scraps also tumbled out of her purse. When the guests saw all this, they broke out in laughter and ridiculed her. Come on, well, this has gone sad in the other direction now. Who's, who's going to laugh at that? It's just mean people. She was so ashamed that she wished she were a thousand fathoms under the earth. She ran out the door and tried to escape, but a man caught up with her on the stairs and brought her back. When she looked at him, she saw it was King Thrushbeard, and he said, I and the beggar are the same person, and I was also the husser who rode over your pots and smashed them to pieces. All this happened to you for your benefit and to punish you because you had ridiculed me some time ago. Now, however, our wedding will be celebrated. Then her father also appeared with his entire court, and she was cleaned and magnificently dressed, appropriate for her position, and the festive event was her marriage with King Thrushbeard. The end. Yeah, I don't know about this one. I mean, yeah, she was really mean. Then she was humbled, but 
still kind of messed up, of King Thrushbeard and her father to essentially psychologically torture her like this. I mean, she's got to be just super traumatized as she's standing up there getting married. From her perspective, she was abandoned by her father and then by her minstrel husband, and now it's revealed that it was all an elaborate plot to take her down a peg. She's going to have some serious psychological issues as a result of this. Definitely abandonment issues, definitely major trust issues with her new husband and her father. I mean, yeah, she was mean and rude and judgmental before, and I'm all for people learning lessons and becoming more humble and more grateful for what you have, but this is just... This feels fucked up, right? This feels like overkill. And I mean, things were starting to go well. She was doing a great job selling the pots at the market, right? So she was like learning how to how to earn earn a living you know as like a salesperson that's a skill that is a valuable skill she was doing really well with that and then boom king thrushbeard is like oh no this is going too well i've got to completely destroy her hope and run over all of her pots that is just so disturbing super messed up king thrushbeard i feel i feel like she could go two directions after this either she's going to be terrified and traumatized and shell-shocked or she's just going to be so pissed off and vengeful and take it out on her husband and father and servants and literally everyone like fuck all these people and to be honest i don't think i'd blame her if she did go that direction this shit was rough but how did she not recognize king thrushbeard when when he was the minstrel though she knew his face before and we know he had a distinctive chin. Why did they call him King Thrushbeard, though? Because it was his chin that looked like a thrush's beak. If he grew a beard, wouldn't that cover up the crooked chin, thereby negating the reason for his nickname? Kind of a poorly thought-out nickname, really. It should be King Thrush Chin, or, or nothing. If he grew a beard, he'd just be normal again. Unless his chin was so crooked... That even the beard grew crooked, in which case we're dealing with a pretty severe deformity. And then she definitely should have recognized him. And another thing, why would King Thrushbeard want to marry her? She literally ridiculed him and gave him a mean nickname. He should be like, fuck this stuck-up girl, I don't need this in my life, I'm a king. And then got on and married a nice, kind, generous, grateful woman who would make a great and benevolent queen. That's definitely the better move. Instead, he's like, no, I'll just psychologically torture her for a while to teach her a lesson and then marry her once she is broken. That is messed up behavior. That is super abusive. So actually, maybe they're perfect for each other. I mean, they say at the beginning that King Thrushbeard is quote-unquote a good king, but his behavior says otherwise. They're both vengeful psychopaths. So yeah, maybe they're a perfect match. And their marriage will be a series of events of them both just torturing each other with ridicule and psychological warfare until their kingdom descends into chaos. And last thing here, there's also never any mention of a change in attitude or humility or gratitude on her part. We kind of just assume that from the series of events. But for all we know, she's just as much of a bitch as she ever was. So yeah, they're a perfect match, I guess. There's two awful psychos living happily ever after. Man, I would not want to live in their kingdom because it is going to get crazy in there. 
Well, I think the intended lesson here is pretty clear that you shouldn't be judgmental and look down on people. The lesson is to be humble and, and grateful for what you have. But dipping into the more literal lessons, I guess they're saying if you aren't humble, then something will inevitably happen that will humble you and take you down. In this particular story, it's not life that's humbling her. It's this crazy King Thrushbeard conspiring with her father to teach her a lesson. And, and the plan is pretty convoluted and messy. And it's not clear that it even works and that she does learn a lesson and become humble. That is never addressed. We just assume that. I think the actual lesson from this story is that if you're mean and rude to people, then people are going to fuck with you and do shit back to you. There is a little bit of you reap what you sow going on here. She's mean to people, and then one of the people that she's mean to puts her through this psychological hellfire and makes her think she might starve and die. So yeah, I guess that's a lesson. If you're mean to people, at some point, you're going to come across someone who's even meaner than you are. This is a story where it doesn't say anything about the people being happy after the events of the story, and I entirely understand why. This might not be a happy ending here, people. So maybe that's another lesson. Sometimes fucked up behavior just leads to more fucked up behavior, and shit gets messy and goes off the rails and doesn't end well. So that's the big takeaway here. Be kind to people and be humble, because if you're not then people will target you, and your own awfulness will compel others to bring awfulness upon you. Until you're just in the middle of a, a big, messy pile of awfulness. And on that delightful note, let's adapt this thing. This takes place in modern times. We've got a, a spoiled daughter of a billionaire, played by, by Jenny Slate. She's hilarious. So we've got this spoiled girl living in her father's giant mansion, with no intention to ever work or lift a finger. And we've got her father, who let's say is played by Jim Carrey. We can, we can age him up a bit. And Jim Carrey is an eccentric billionaire who is a famous artist, so he's real out there. But he sees his daughter doing nothing and being ungrateful and entitled, and it makes him upset. So he's like, I gotta do something about this. So he talks to the guy who handles his security, who's like, I know some people who, who could put a good scare in her, make her appreciate her life a little more. So they hire this team of ex-special ops guys to pretend to be mercenaries and kidnap her when she's on her way to Milan for fashion week. And the head mercenary is played by Chris Pratt. And so Chris Pratt and his team of fake mercenaries kidnap her when she lands in Milan, and they take her to some apartment in the city and they hold her hostage. And the plan is to keep her there and make life awful for her so she appreciates her life and is more grateful and will work to better herself and do something with her life. And so Chris Pratt calls Jim Carrey, who of course is in on this, but Jim says, I do not negotiate with terrorists. He says this loud so Jenny, Jenny Slate can hear, and he hangs up the phone. Because just like in the original story, the king's kind of an asshole for abandoning his daughter, and he'll do the same thing here. He abandons her. If only performatively, but still. So Chris Pratt is like, well, I guess you'll be hanging out with us for a while, and if we can't convince your rich dad that you're worth paying for, then we'll have to kill you. And Jenny Slade is like, oh shit, my dad abandoned me, I'm totally on my own, what the hell am I going to do? So she panics for a minute, but then she gets an idea. Chris Pratt and the mercenaries have a, have a bottle of whiskey because they're pretending to be these you know badass mercenaries, and Jenny Slate takes this little bag of ecstasy out from her underwear where she hid it, and she dumps it all into the bottle of whiskey on the table when they're not looking. Because they think this is going to be super easy job. They're not thinking she's a possible threat in any way. 
So they drink the whiskey and start just totally tripping out. And in their delirium, she convinces them to undo her handcuffs. And when they're all dancing to hollow notes, she escapes out of the fire escape. And the only place she can think of to go is her friend's apartment, who she knows in Milan. And this friend is played by John Early, who plays another super pretentious rich kid. And he's like, oh my god, I can't believe your dad abandoned you. That is terrible. I got your back, sis. So the next morning, Chris Pratt and the mercenaries wake up, and they're like, fuck, how were we so stupid? This is so embarrassing. We cannot tell Jim Carrey and our security boss that we couldn't even keep watch of this spoiled rich girl. We gotta get her back. Otherwise, we will be laughingstocks. It'll still be bad that she got away, but if we get her back, then we can finish the job and it'll be all right. So they set out to track Jenny Slate's contacts to see where she could have gone. And one of the guys is like, she's got a lot of Instagram photos with this one annoying looking guy who lives in Milan. Maybe she's with him. So they use their special ops skills and find his apartment and they show up and John Early sees them on his security camera system before the system gets knocked out and the screens all go black. And he's like, oh my God, they're here. And Jenny Slate is like, don't worry, we got this. We can work with what we have. And then it's basically Home Alone, except with these two spoiled rich kids who have crazy weird art pieces instead of normal stuff you'd have in your home. So the mercenaries break in and the lights are killed and they split up to find them. And one of the mercenaries goes through this one room where there are all these creepy mannequins all over the place. And then he passes one of them and it's John Early standing perfectly still. And he catches the guy unawares and knocks him out. And another room is just like, it's just the room of sound. And it's an experimental art piece with speakers all over the walls. And a mercenary goes in there and the room just erupts in crazy sounds and then particular sounds in certain directions. And when he's looking one direction, Jenny Slate jumps out and bangs him over the head. And then there's another room with sheets of silk coming down from the ceiling all through the room. And Chris Pratt is walking through when they press a button and all the silk falls down over Chris Pratt. And he's blinded and covered in the silks. And Jenny Slate and John Early grab the ends of the silks. And they use them to tie Chris Pratt up. And just like they pull on him and he falls down. And they pin him so he can't move. And Jenny Slate's like, we've tied up all your men so the tables have turned. And John Early says... Yeah, now we're gonna fucking kill your asses. Jenny's like, no, we're just gonna call the cops. We're gonna call the police. I don't wanna, I'm not like a murder person. And John's like, yeah, yeah, okay, no, that's cool. I just, I just thought you were sort of going that way, so I was more following your energy with that. That's totally not me either. Not into murdering. And Chris Pratt's like, look, we, we never wanted to kidnap you. It's a job. All right, your father hired us. And the whole plan comes out. Jenny Slate calls her dad, Jim Carrey, and is like, I cannot believe you did that, daddy. Jim Carrey says, yeah, it was drastic, I know. But I just wanted you to be more humble and motivated and do something with your life. And Jenny's like, well, you know what? It totally worked because I found my passion. And she starts a business called Avant-Garde Security Systems, where they install art pieces that also function as home security products, like sculptures that have cameras and lasers inside them, and a decorative light that is also a flamethrower, and of course, the Room of Sound, which is a great place for a home movie studio or, or for a party lounge or something like this, but can also disorient home intruders and drive them insane with sound. Bonus. And Josie starts this business with John Early, and they make a name for themselves and live happily ever after. The... And, and that will do it 
for this week's story session. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Come on back next week for a story titled Little Snow White. Another all-time classic. Let's see what the differences are between this original version and the version we all know. There is lots of room for weird, crazy shit in Snow White, so let's see just how weird they got with it back in the day. Come on back next week to find out. My name is Zach Stewart, and these are the Shadow Bear Story Sessions.